Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Something Rhymes With Purple, which as most of you know by now, if you're a purple person, is a podcast about words, language, meeting famous people, not in my case, uh, but in the case of my lovely co-presenter, Giles Brandreth. Hi, Giles. Hello. I've got a really exciting name to drop this week. <gasps> okay. Yeah. That's fine. At some point in my life, I will be able to drop a drop a name or two. You could, you just choose not to. I just drop them for the sake of dropping them because it's become one of the things that I do. You meet endless, hugely famous people. Most of the famous people I meet were famous 50 years ago uh, and people <laughs> haven't heard of them anymore. So I'm reviving their fame by chatting about them on our podcast. Excellent. Um, as you know, Giles, I saw my parents for the first time in a very long time this week. And the one question that they asked me to ask you was, where does Giles Brandreth get his boating skills? Um, because they have been <laughs> totally addicted to another programme that you do, which is your canal boating series with Sheila Hancock. And as I've never seen it, apologies, I don't get to watch much telly these days. I thought they were being totally straight, but it seems... That, in fact, as you then replied, it has become a bit of a contact sport for you, quite literally. Well, they do say on the canals that it is a contact sport. And interestingly, the professionals do seem to bump into things as much as I do. My, oh, okay. the, the challenge is, what, for those that don't know, this is a television series that's been running in the UK for about 10 years now, featuring a brilliant pair of actors, Timothy West and his wife, Prunella Scales. People internationally will know Prunella Scales probably best because she played Sybil Fawlty in Fawlty Towers all those years ago, but a true classic. Her husband, Timothy West, is a famous classical actor. And this couple have loved canal boating all their lives and have done it all their lives and made TV series. And then they decided to retire and they handed over the windlass. Do you know what a windlass is? W-I-N-D-L-A-S-S? I can't define it, no. Well, it's, so tell me. it's an implement that you use for opening locks. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. So essentially what's happened is this. With a friend of mine, Sheila Hancock, uh, who is 88 uh, and proud to be, so I can mention it, she and I have been taking on the mantle of uh, Timothy West and Brianna Scales and going canal boating ourselves. And we're making a new series now, which I think begins in September in the UK. And I think it's shown internationally as well. And it's essentially us messing about in boats. And she is incredibly good at it. The problem for me is this. I am a man and I can't do two things at once. And the idea is to chat about what's going on while steering the boat. Well, I can either steer or I can chat. If I try to chat and steer, we then run into the bank or into a bridge or we virtually miss the lock. So, so people like your parents who've been viewing will have been gently amused. But the novelty, now we've done, so, we've done about eight or more canals, the novelty is beginning to wear off because I really uh. should be better than I am. I am quite good at opening the locks, though. The locks yes. I can do, but the uh, navigation is more of a channel challenge. Well, it's provided a lot of entertainment. And I have to say today, we're not on the water. We are under the big top today, aren't we? Because we had an email from Brent Calderwood in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Yeah. And we have him to thank for the choice of subject for today's podcast. He said, I've been writing an article about carnivals in films. And while researching British films, such as The Third Man or Brighton Rock, I noticed that US and British English differ in their carnival related terms. I'm wondering if you could help me figure out why. This might be a good idea for a future episode. Well, it was, we thought, a very good idea for an episode, Brent. And um, we talked about Polari last week, which, as we will discover, is a language often used by carnival workers in the past. It felt kind of right to do it this week. So thank you for the for the brilliant suggestion. Giles, I have to ask, first of all, how are you with circuses and funfairs? Do you have a big tradition in your family well, going? I, I'm very interested in the fundamentally in the word carnival, because this can mean so mm. many things to all of us. We can either be talking about the carnivale that you might have in Venice, where people dress up in amazing costumes and go on the canals, or you can talk about a carnival that is kind of at a circus. Uh, mm-hmm. There are all sorts of drills. So we have to define all this, but I am a circus holic. Uh-huh. When I was a little boy, I did indeed want to run away to the circus. Almost my favourite programme in the 1950s on British television was an American import called Circus Boy. And mm-hmm. it was about a child, a boy who worked in the circus. And I felt I had a family link with the circus because my great-great-grandfather was a friend of Phineas Taylor Barnum, the amazing circus owner, in many ways the inventor of the modern circus in America, P.T. Barnum, eventually became part part of Barnum and Bailey's Circus. So you are talking here to somebody who is literally a circus nut, a circus freak, a circus... I mean, I just love everything to do with circuses. We don't need to get into P.T. Barnum necessarily too much here, but I would encourage anybody to find out a bit more about him because, as you probably know, Giles, he was actually a pretty complex individual and he did quite a lot of things that were pretty horrible, it has to be said. But if anyone's interested, there is another podcast out there, which is absolutely excellent, called You're Dead to Me. And it's a history podcast by my friend, Greg Jenner. And I'm not just saying this because it's my friend. He's my friend. It is a really fantastic podcast, but he does a whole episode on P.T. Barnum. And I learned a lot, a lot, a lot about him from there. So it's definitely worth a listen. But um, yeah, I was quite surprised, actually. I was expecting him to see to, to, to be some sort of amazing larger than life individual, which indeed he was. But some of his deeds were pretty, you know, I suppose we're looking back, obviously, but um, yeah, not particularly moral. Well, but what is interesting is, of course, recollections may vary and there are several sides to every story. And most of the people listening to this will know of P.T. Barnum through the musical Barnum, which Mm. is a, I suppose, a candy floss version of his life story and Mm. a kind of version of it that there was in a movie called uh, the Great the greatest showman, showman, Greatest Showman, the greatest showman. Yeah. Uh, which was hugely popular. And now people go and do sort of sing-alongs at it. But as you rightly say, a fascinating character. I have upstairs here at home a book, I think, called Humbugs of the World, which is his account of people that P.T. Barnum admired. And many of them were hucksters. And as you can say, possibly of, of a doubtful moral probity, I hope that didn't include my great-great-grandfather who featured in his book and who was indeed a friend of P.T. Barnum. But let's get Mm. back to circuses and carnivals. What is a carnival? When did the first carnival come about? What is the origin of that word? 
Well, originally a carnival was in Roman Catholic countries and the period before Lent. So it was a time of public merrymaking, of festivities. It comes from the medieval Latin carne levamen, sorry, meaning shrove tide. And if you break that down, that is carne meaning flesh and a levare meaning to put away. In other words, you would put away meat during Lent. So the meat-free fasting of Lent came after uh, the carnival. It doesn't actually come, as a lot of people think, from carne vale, farewell meat. It doesn't come from that. It comes from the idea of putting away meat, which means that carnival is related to unexpected uh, words such as carnivorous or carnage or even carnation because the flower is quite fleshy in colour, uh, carrion, etc, etc. So that's where carnival comes from. And then it was the merrymaking, the festivities that really took over. And is the um, men- forgive me, does the merrymaking happen before the beginning of Lent or to celebrate yes. the end of Lent? So it's be- no, so before. You're running riot before the period of abstinence begins. Yes, it's the same idea of Mardi Gras. So Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, the idea is that you eat lots before Lent begins. That's the same idea. That's good. So Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Lent and then you have 40 days and nights uh, echoing the the time that in the Bible stories uh, Jesus spent in the wilderness uh, before the crucifixion. So the carnival is a celebration. That's how it begins. And what period, what, what are we talking, what century are we talking about? A thousand years ago? I mean... Oh, the word carnival, no, we're talking um, sort of Middle Ages, really, or just a little bit after that. But as I say, it's got its origins in in Latin. So that's carnival. And a carni, which is a sort of circus or funfair worker, that is a shortening, as you'd probably expect, of carnival itself. And then you've got the circus which is also incredibly old. Um, You can probably guess where circus began in Roman history. It was the large building, oval building at that point, which was you know, used for the exhibition of horse or chariot races, etc. And the Circus Maximus was the largest and most celebrated in Rome. And that is often referred to specifically as the Circus with a capital C. And when did the two come together? Because I think of them as rather distinct things. I think of a carnival as a celebration. And now you mentioned, I suppose, I think of it as a, a something that happens, at the fun fair, the rides and all of that. But I think of the circus as an entertainment where you went and sat in the round. And, and I think of the circus coming certainly to Britain in the sort of 1780s. Yes, and it's a very good question. And actually, this brings us back to Brent's email at the beginning where he's talking about the differences between British and US English in terms of the language of circuses, because you're right, for us, a carnival is a time of feasting, of revelry, of indulgence, etc. And it wasn't until the 1930s that in North American English, it became a funfair or what we would call a a circus. And um, that's when you'll find the first references, for example, in 19. 31, an oblong of trucks surrounding a village of tents. A carnival company is coming, exclamation mark. Or in the New Yorker from 1939, 60,000 outdoor show people, the carnies who travel from town to town with carnivals. So fairly late, I would say, that divergence. But for us, as you say, it has almost always pretty much been a circus, which looks all the way back to those um, you know, public spectacles in Roman history. And there have been British circuses, I think, Uh, Really, since the end of the 18th century, would you say? 
Um, yeah, I think um, during the middle of the 19th century, so that's when European and American circuses began to diverge. But yes, before then, in the sort of 17, middle of the 18th century, around the 1730s, 1740s, you'll find the first references to circuses and big tops and that kind of thing. And I think the first one was actually in London. And then very soon things started to follow suit in America. But when they diverged, I think it was because of the railroads in the 19th century in the US that allowed circus shows to travel huge distances. And if you think of the horrible treatment of some of the animals, particularly in Barnum circuses, who had to travel miles, thousands and thousands of miles to be, you know, transported to the next venue. And I think that's when things began to differ. So the circus owners in America had extra rings, larger tents, larger tops. Um, whereas we stuck pretty much that single ring for quite a long time, that single circus, um, which is obviously what it means, a ring. I remember, because I researched some of this for one of my Victorian murder mysteries, discovering a man called Philip Astley. And I think in this country, he's credited with being sort of one of the, the founders of the circus. And he was Absolutely. a very skilled equestrian. And he could he rode on his horse. He stood on his horse. He rode backwards on his horse, forwards on his horse at great speed and all of that. And it was a, essentially an equestrian display. And then it he developed it more and he got jugglers and tightrope walkers and, you know, and even clowns began to appear in the circus. We can come and talk about clowns. Oh, this is such a, a rich area. We must stay calm. So I think of a carnival still as funfair. Circus, you're going to find acrobats, jugglers, tightrope walkers. That's a circus. It's an entertainment. The carnival is a place that you go to and you go on roller coaster rides, big dippers, dodgem cars. You buy candy floss. Which one shall we go to first? Well, let's start with the funfair, shall we? Yes. You've established the root of the name carnival. Fairground. Yes. Why is it called a fair when you go to the fair, funfair? So you know, it's funny, isn't it? Because whenever people want to sort of speak in oldie worldy speak, as they would call it, they will put a Y in fair. But this actually goes back to the Latin feria. So it didn't start with Old English. It's feria meant a holy day because fairs were often held on religious holidays. Um, so that is why the, where we get the idea of the kind of fair with stalls and uh, amusements, etc. So you get into the fairground and the first thing um, my grandchildren like to go on is some kind of a merry-go-round, mm. which I suppose could also be called a carousel. I think of those as rather charming, the ones that are particularly like wooden hobby horses that you sit on the horse and it's brightly painted and they move up and down as you go around. Is a merry-go-round the same thing as a carousel? Um, I think it is. Again, we're talking about American versus British English, uh, really. So the carousel actually goes back to the Italian carosella, and it's amazing, this one, because it means a little battle, which seems very odd for something that is, you know, entirely aimed at amusement. But actually, that is because it's said that the carousels were first invented to train jousters in medieval times. So I'm not quite sure how it how they used to operate. Maybe it was just a little bit like having to meet the next opponent. I'm not sure. But carousel is from there. And then a merry-go-round is pretty much what we've always called it in British English. And I just love the idea of a merry-go-round. Obviously, it's used in quite figurative ways these days. But um, it's just, you know, it's something that goes around and that makes you happy. Um, and that goes back to the 1700s. This is not very scientific, uh, but based on a wonderful film with Danny Kaye called The Court Jester, 
I think the origin of this, the knights in armor on the carousel, is that when they were being trained, they sat on a horse attached to a chain above them, which was Mm. then attached to a spike in the middle, and they would go round in a circle held up on this chain. It would lift them onto the horse, and they would go round in a circle doing their fighting attached to a stick in the middle. And they went round and round in circles. Oh, well, there you go. How amazing. But, I mean, this is based on a Hollywood film <laughs> about medieval yeah. knights. So I don't know how accurate it is, but that's my Sounds very plausible. There's going to be a purple person out there that knows all about this. Um, so please do let us know because it, it's fascinating. Um, when you go to the fun fair, what do you enjoy? Do you enjoy going to do take Oh, your... I love the merry-go-rounds. Just to finish on that, they're yeah. also called whirly-go-rounds and giddy-go-rounds, which I love. And I love going on those. And when I go to sort of more sophisticated amusement parks I suppose they have those giant teacups that I quite like as well even at my age I love you know the ones which got the wheel in the middle and you can spin it around and you can go as fast as you want I love those teacups there's a great line in Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night about the whirligig of time bringing in its revenges oh, whirligig is brilliant. what is whirligig what's the definition of a whirligig I think a whirligig, um, I'm looking this up in the OED now, I thought it was a child's toy and then applied to a flighty woman. Yeah, a whirligig, uh, various toys that are whirled, twirled or spun around, such as a, a spinning top or a toy with four arms like miniature windmill sails which whirl around when moved through the air and then applied to various mechanical contrivances having a whirly movement and, yes, applied to flighty women, fickle, inconstant, etc. But it, it started off as a child's toy in the 15th century, so going back quite a long time. So Just going back to the sort of teacups and yes. those spinning things, one of the most embarrassing moments for me as a parent, or at least embarrassing for my children, was going on a Peppa Pig spinning ride at a fun fair. And I thought I was quite good at this kind of thing. But as I've got older, I clearly have just become far more cowardly. And it started to go really, really fast. And my daughter at the time was about three or four, was absolutely loving it. And I heard the ride operator say something about putting your hands up. And I thought he was saying, put, it, put your hands up if you want it to go more slowly. So I, I put my hand up. And of course, what he was saying is, if you want to go faster, oh. put your hand up. Oh. So I had to stop with dozens of people on the ride. I had to ask if I could get off in the middle of a Peppa Pig ride. <laughs> That's how pathetic I am. Well, so, I, yeah. I'm so pathetic, I wouldn't get onto it. <laughs> there was. It really was quite fast. Oh, they're say. terrifying. I remember going somewhere on the south coast on a ride called Wild Mouse. And mm. the horror of this, it's a roller coaster, and we'll come to that word in a moment. It would take you slowly up a hill and then it would career you around a corner and then it would take you to the edge of what seemed like a precipice. It would suddenly stop and then it would turn and go sweeping down. Oh, it was terrifying. I did it once. I shall never do it again. But my children went back again and again for more rides on Wild Mouse. What is the origin of roller coaster? Where does that come from? Where was the first roller coaster? Roller coaster... It's said that it's so called because the early examples had ramps fitted with rollers, rollers over which sleds would then coast. And it's said that it was first invented at a roller skating rink in uh, Massachusetts. So that is possibly where it comes from. The early uses date definitely back to that century. So, uh, oh, can you hear the rain in the background? Is that rain? Suddenly absolutely pouring here, yeah. Um, 1883. Chicago Tribune is the first 
first reference that I have here. I load the roller coaster because it's just too frightening. And I won't even go on a Ferris wheel. Those gigantic wheels. Why are they called Ferris? Was there a man called Ferris or is it Ferris yes, as in iron? Ah, oh, there was a man called No, it's an, it's an eponym, this one. So George Washington Gale Ferris Jr. is responsible for the uh, Ferris wheel. And I'm like you, not something for me. He lived from 1859 to 1896. And in the earliest uses, it says a wheel 250 feet in diameter swung on an axle, the largest steel casting ever made, resting upon towers 135 feet high. That says it all, really. So yes, the big wheel, not something something that I would love to go on now. There's the waltzer as well, which is... I, I do quite waltzer? like the waltzer. I, what is a waltzer? Um, have you never been on one? No, I don't think so I So it's like a sort of undulating track and the car, there are sort of lots of cars on them and they go round and round and round and they also spin on their own axis. So they're not unlike the teacups, really. What about the tunnel of love? Do you remember <laughs> that? No. Oh, I remember I remember the, the haunted house ones. I loved those. Ah. But the Tunnel of Love, there were, no. Well, there were two the types. Snout. There was the haunted house, which was quite fun. You went on a little train, didn't you? And sort of cobwebs yes. came over you. And you went round a corner and there were sort of ghoulies came out and screamed at you. The ghost train. The ghost train. The ghost train. I loved exactly. those. Loved those. Well, there was also the Tunnel of Love. The dates from a more innocent time where, you know, having a little bit of a smooch, it was like being at the back of the cinema. You got into this, uh, uh, often, I, my recollection, the tunnel of love that I seem to remember going on, and this would be at Dreamland in Margate on the Isle of Thanet, and you got into a little boat, it was a little motorised boat, it was like a little stream, and there was beautiful music played, and there were lovely flowers, and it was sort of moonlit and dark, and a little bit of romance was permitted. Uh, not much, Ooh. because it wasn't a very long tunnel of love. <laughs> you couldn't get very far, but you could certainly put your arm around your inner Murata. Oh, well, that sounds good. Uh, what about, what that? about coconut so, shies and oh, things? Oh, uh, How are you okay. with the so we'll, we'll get off the rides now, except there was one more I wanted to ask about, and that was the one oh, yeah. where you climbed a lot of stairs and you got to the top of a, a kind of tower and then mm -hmm. you sat on a mat of coconut rushing. Oh, uh, yes. Do you know what yes, I mean? Yes, helter-skelter. Helter-skelter, that's the word. Helter-skelter. Where does that come from? Oh, helter I love helter-skelters. Um, well, it's interesting. It's one of those what linguists call reduplicative compounds. So if you think of things like willy-nilly, shilly-shally, dilly-dally, all of those. Quite often, one of the elements doesn't have any meaning on its own. So um, that's the case with this one. So helter-skelter is probably imitating the kind of clatter of feet moving rapidly or many running, running feet. And it resembles hurry-scurry, um, if you like. But each element on its own doesn't really mean very much, in fact. So it could be that neither of them really meant anything on their own, but they were put together to have that kind of echoic sound of running pitter-patter um, of feet. Um, what was that technical term you used to, about them? Reduplicative compound. I love it. A, a redupl... I can't even say it. Reduplicative compound. I compound. Love it. It's, it's ultimate it's, tongue twister. Reducl... I can't even say it once. Reduplicative compound. Reduplicative... Um, <laughs> and just to go back, you could skelter along for a little while, for a short while in English. It was to dash along or hurry or rush. So if you want the one element that never existed on its own, that would be helter. But I loved the helter-skelter. Absolutely loved that. So yeah, so actually we 
we need to break for a little bit, don't we? Should we break and then come back and talk about all the stalls? Let's break and then get, and then we'll go to the stalls. We've been on the rides, or rather you've been on the rides because you seem to yeah. be ready to go on the carousel, the merry-go-round. Even you're going to risk the roller coaster. The Ferris wheel, both of us are a bit nervous about. The waltzer, yeah. you quite like. But the helter-skelter, you're wild about that. Whereas I, well, I suppose I can cope with the dodgems just about. <gasps> dodgems. Can I ask you something, Susie? We're going to talk now about the stalls that one might come across at a funfair or a carnival. I associate these stalls also with a fete, a garden fete. F-E-T-E. That's the French word. And as we discovered the other day, well, in fact, it was on one of our supplements, one of our extras, our Purple Plus episodes, we were talking about how the French language When you drop the S, sometimes you have an accent. The circumflex accent indicates where it would have gone. So FET, Mm. F-E-T-E, is actually short for feast, isn't it? Exactly right. And that that, that all relates back to carnival and the celebration and the feast? Yeah, so a fete originally in the 15th century was an entertainment on a large scale. So it was a festival, it was a celebration, often took place on saints' days, religious holidays. You have to remember the, the religious thread that runs through all of these words. Holiday, if you remember, is a shortening of holy day. A red letter day is because saints' days and religious holidays were marked in red in the Roman calendar. So you have to remember that. So that is where it stayed for a very long time, religious festivals, big festivals and celebrations. But then in around the early 19th century, it became a public bazaar or a similar event. That's what fate began to denote. So typically something held outdoors, you know, the fate that we would recognise today in Britain, at least, organised to raise funds for a good cause, stalls, refreshments, that kind of thing. So that began to take over in the early 19th century. But the, the sort of in the Roman Catholic tradition, the festival of a saint after whom a person is named, so a person's name day, that remained a fate um, and in fact does to this day. So the fate as we now know it has become a more genteel event. It's a, a village fate and there's a television series called Midsummer Murders which you won't yeah. have seen because you don't have... I have. Oh, you've seen, oh, I see. You haven't seen my... You haven't seen no, my... No, no, Great I, have, Canal I saw that when I was a student. Oh, That's fine. been going on for a long it time, It has been. It? And they regularly have murders taking place at village fates. It's a sort of place where a murder takes place. You know, somebody's going to a coconut shy and the coconut sort of kills somebody along the route. But the stalls we're talking about might be at a fate, but we're talking about them at fun fairs or carnivals. Let me tell you what my favourite is. I have two favourites. There was one that my father loved, which was called Knock the Lady Out of Bed. And I don't think they do it anymore. I've not heard of it. uh, No, we're probably, it's probably totally politically incorrect. The idea was that there was a bed, uh, like a bed, in which a lady in a nightie was sitting. And you, you were given a ball quite a hard ball, I think wooden ball, and if you hit the target, it would tip the bed up and the lady whoop, would fall out of bed in her little nighty onto the floor. But it was a soft floor and it was charming. Can you Could you knock the lady out of bed? My father adored this, he thought, and he would spend a small fortune. It was sort of sixpence a throw. He could be there and spend 10 shillings. That's, you know, 20 lots of sixpence. I couldn't, it was quite, you needed quite a hard throw. And I threw, I couldn't even hit the target. But my father threw and threw and threw. And I think it was rigged because very rarely did the lady fall out of bed. 
And of course, when she did, I, I assure you, she was really uh, well covered up in her nightgown. But it was just the idea, the, uh, the frisson of knocking the lady out of bed. So I liked that. And I also liked the coconut shy. We know what it is. Why is it called a shy? Yes. So it's got a slightly strange history, the coconut shy, I have to say. Um, it comes from a rather old meaning of the word shy, which was to throw or to lob something. And it, as I say, very complicated history. The Oxford English Dictionary will tell you that it probably goes back to a shy cock Bear with me on this one. Now, a shy cock was, in the days of horrible cockfights, it was thought to be a cowardly cock, so one that was not really up for fighting. So the idea of some of something that wasn't really dedicated or committed was then transferred to the idea of a throw that was a bit of a kind of random, spontaneous throw and not something that was very directed. It's so slightly strange etymology. And I suppose a coconut shy is a sort of, you know, for fun, you're trying to kind of knock coconuts off with sort of slightly random throws. I suppose that is the connection. But, um, you know, I, I suppose quite fittingly, it's a slightly sort of jerky connection between, between all of them. But I too liked coconut shies. Which of the other stalls you in, you enjoyed? Well, I always loved, this is not really a stall, but I would always have to get some candy floss. I don't know about you. I absolutely loved candy floss. This is called cotton candy in the US. Ah, why, why is that a different name? Well... Floss for us really denoted the rough silk which envelops the cocoon of the silkworm. And because candy floss is as light, you know, it's the spun sugar, isn't it? It's so sort of light. For the American imagination, it seemed to, um, you know, inspire them to think about cotton. And for us, we thought about the cocoon of the silkworm. It was just different interpretations, different imaginations, and the desire to be different, I think. And the machine, ironically, that made cotton candy was apparently invented by a man who was a dentist, William Morrison. Of course, it's the worst thing for your teeth that you could possibly have. But flossing um, is good for your teeth, curiously. Flossing is, yes, <laughs> but not, that kind of floss. But not candy flossing. What about when you had, did you ever go fishing where there was a fishing rod and a oh, yes. metal loop on the end and you, you fished for usually ducks, I think, rather than fish. They were going along a stream and you had to pick up a duck. You won a prize. Yes. Uh, I remember all of those. Uh, was that hoopla? No, hoopla was actually throwing hoops, wasn't yeah. it? Is that why it's called hoopla? Yes. So you said hoop and then hoopla like that. The phrase we now use, oh, was a lot of hoopla. Does that relate to the carnival game of throwing a hoop? over the prize and you never got the prize you aimed the hoop you know over the teddy bear and it always never because it had to land completely over the teddy bear or the bottle of whiskey yeah they are linked i'm not quite sure why unnecessary fuss hoopla in that sense was kind of somehow inspired by the game in which rings are thrown to encircle one of the prizes but definitely they are linked they both come from the same origin if you like i'm just looking this up in the oed now just to see when that actually it's interesting the OED doesn't even mention the kind of unnecessary fuss. But 1907 was the idea of the game. And uh, yeah, who, who knows why it took on that sense, but they're absolutely linked. Do the carnival workers have a lingo of their own? People who work on fun fairs? They do. And it goes back a very, very long time. Um, so... 
a lot of the language that you will find was inspired by the Roma people. So they've contributed enormously to outdoor public entertainment, to circuses as well, it has to be said. You know, often scorned by larger society, we tend to use the word gypsy really as a catch-all identifier. Um, And if you remember, gypsy came about because the nomadic people were thought to come from Egypt. That is where that came from. And yet central to the Roma world, really, is community with other people. You know, it's a sort of life, if you like, of noise and bustle, but also spirit of the community. So I think much much maligned, really. Um, But yes, they have their own language, which is absolutely wonderful and steeped in history. So we talked about Polari last week. There is a subset of the Roman language that definitely uses or draws on Polari a lot. So you have Bona, again, you have Kushti, you have having a deco, taking a look. They talk about Dinari for money, um, Jari, which comes from the Italian mangiare to eat. And that's food if you want some Jari. Um, A gaff can mean so many different things. A fairground, a music hall, a ride operator, a fake sideshow exhibit, or even the underwear, apparently, that male cross-dressers wear to conceal their tackle. That can also be called a gaff. Um, And honestly, I could go on, Giles. There are just so many different words for, um, you know, for different parts of the fun fair. I mean, in terms of the circus, where you'll also find this incredible tribal lexicon maybe we should do that another day because we've got so much to talk about we have got so much to talk about and i want to tell you about some of the great clowns that i have encountered because when i was a little boy i collected famous clowns and i managed to meet the most famous british clown who was called coco the clown and the most famous clown in the world who was a russian clown called popoff Yes. And I shook his hand. Oh, I can't wait to hear that. I mean, to say I shook his hand, it would be better if he, you know, put a custard pie in my face. That would make it more <laughs> clown-like. But we're going to discuss clowns. I think we must devote a whole. Also, the three ring circus, the smell of the sawdust, all of that we've got to we've got to evoke that. And because I it, agree. And it is a different world in a way from the carnival. So we've had a carnival. We've had a carnival time today. Thank you for that, Susie Dent. And thank you, all of you, Purple People, for sending us your questions and queries. A rich correspondence. Let's start with uh, Connie Matheson from New Zealand, who's written in this week. Uh, She says, hi, Susie. Hi, Giles. I've always wondered what the origin of the phrase, Bob's your uncle is. Could you help? Well, I think the origin has something to do with politics. But before we get round to the origin... What exactly does the phrase mean, Bob's your uncle? How would we use it? Uh, We tend to use it to mean, and that's that, everything's all right. So you would just say, um, you know, if someone says, oh, we're running out of drink for our party, you'd say, well, I'll just go go down to the offy, British for an off licence or a pub, and I'll simply pick some up. Bob's your uncle. Um, Job done, sorted. Exactly. And the origin? And you're right to mention the political connotations, because many people believe that Bob and his nephew were the Marquis of Salisbury, who was Robert Arthur Talbot Gascoigne Cecil, and Arthur Balfour, his favourite nephew. So um, Arthur was appointed to several political posts in the 1880s and lots of them were really puzzling because he'd shown apparently no prior interest in public work. And it's really unlikely that Arthur Balfour would ever have become the politician that he did without his uncle. He actually went on to become prime minister thanks, it is thought, to the patronage of his influential uncle, Robert Bob Gascoigne Cecil. Um, And I suppose the fact that the word nepotism derives from nephew 
makes that link seem all the more neat. But the probably the more likely source is actually the music hall and a song oh. which was basically very, very popular in the early 1900s. And it was called Bob's Your Uncle. Bob's Your Uncle, follow your Uncle Bob. He knows what to do. He'll look after you. And that sort of song and the phrase Bob's Your Uncle came into being around the same time, long after Arthur Balfour was PM. So we think the music hall theory might just have the edge. I always liked the political philosophy of Arthur Balfour. And indeed, when I was a member of Parliament, I kept one of his sayings in a frame on my desk. And Arthur Balfour is the politician, indeed the Prime Minister, who once said, nothing matters very much and most things don't matter at all. <laughs> and I found that very soothing and it kept things in perspective when all around me were losing their heads. You tweeted something very recently that actually also had a lot of resonance for me. And it was about, um, I've had something like, I've had a lot of worries in my life and most of them never happened, Yeah, which exactly. absolutely sums me up. Who is that, Mark Twain? That is Mark Twain. Well, it's a tribute yeah. to Mark Twain. The great thing about Mark Twain is that um, a lot of Oscar Wilde's lines in Europe are attributed to Mark Twain in America and vice versa. But oh, he was a very wise and witty man, the great Samuel Clements. And he did say, I'm an old man and have known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. Yes. So you can stop oh, worrying how I now. to that one. Stop worrying. Stop catastrophizing. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's a yes. great word. That's quite a new word, isn't it? Catastrophize. Catastrophize. Um, no, I think it's probably, well, maybe 20th century. Let's have a look. Yeah, 20th century, 1960s. To conjecture or perceive disastrous implications or scenarios. To regard a relatively innocuous situation as considerably worse than it actually is. Yes, yeah. that would be me. Hope for the best, expect the worst. Placebo and placate. Margaret Sim has written in to ask if there's a connection between the word placebo and the word placate. Remind us what they both mean. Okay, so a placebo is usually applied to medicine, isn't it? It's a drug or therapy that's prescribed more for psychological benefit than any direct bodily effect, because actually they don't really contain any of the medicine. They're usually sort of blank pills, for example, but because we believe them to be effective and we believe them to be the medicines, the sort of psychosomatic response is a very positive one. So that arose in the 18th century before actually a placebo was a flatterer or a sycophant or a parasite. And that gives you a clue as to its origin because it comes straight from the Latin placebo, meaning I shall please, I shall be acceptable. In other words, if you're fawning and slightly servile, you were trying to be pleasing and um, then get into the good books of someone. And um, it is indeed related to placate because the Latin placere meant to please. And we kind of lose the connection because of the, um, the hard C and the soft C. Um, and so it's not very clear that they go back to the same one. But to placate someone is, of course, to pacify someone, to conciliate, to please, I suppose, in some way and be less angry or hostile. So they do go back to the same route. So yeah, they are very much linked, Margaret. The word placebo just reminds me of the link between my great-great-grandfather and P.T. Barnum, the uh -huh. circus owner that you were traducing at the top of the show. Uh, yeah. Because 
The reason that my great-great-grandfather knew P.T. Barnum was that the great circus owner used to consume my great-great-grandfather's products. My great-great-grandfather was called Dr. Brandreth. He invented Brandreth's pills that cured everything. And when he was a young man, P.T. Barnum began taking these, and they made him feel healthy and vital and full of life. And when he eventually met Dr. Brandreth, he sought him out to thank him for making these pills. He discovered that the pills he'd been taking had been marketed as Brandreth's pills, but actually were made by frauds, people who were making counterfeit pills and How sending them. Yes. And so, in fact, he was taking non-real Brandreth's pills. He was taking the equivalent of placebos. They weren't the actual pills. But because he believed they were Brandreth's pills, they had the effect that was promised by Dr. Brandreth. Isn't that incredible? Do you know what the opposite or the antonym of a placebo is? No. It's a nocebo, nocebo, which means I shall cause harm. And that is very interesting because, you know, they say that the sort of mind, in terms of the mind's attitude to certain illnesses, et cetera, is, is, is so important. It is a detrimental effect on health because you expect a negative outcome. That is a nocebo. Mm. It's quite interesting, but much more rarely used. Very good. Oh, have you got three fantastic words for us this week? You always come up with something new, and yet they're always old. <laughs> new, new and not always old. useful. Well, this one, I quite like it. It has obviously a link to um, to the fairground and, and to a word that we have already discussed. Instead of a merry-go-round, you can have merry-go-sorry. And merry-go-sorry is pretty much a good metaphor for life because it's a mixture of joy and sadness. Things go round. They're sad, they're happy, they're sad, they're happy. That is a merry-go-sorry. Um, and that's been around for quite a few centuries. It's a beautiful so I quite word. like that one. Mm. I mentioned candy floss, which I love, cotton candy. Um, I am edacious when it comes to cotton candy, and that means fond of eating. E-D-A-C-I-O-U-S, edacious. And finally, uh, something that I might be accused of uh, with my trio sometimes. You'll know this one, Jazz. Sesquipedalian. Oh, I do know this one. Sesquipedalian means a word has too many syllables, or if it reply, applies to a document or a speech, it just means using too many long words. Sesquipedalian. And it goes back to the Latin for words that are a foot and a half long. Well, <laughs> Which is great. We're going to talk about clowns and circuses in full on another day. But I might end today with one of my favourite poems. It's by Shel Silverstein. It's about Clooney the Clown. I'll tell you the story of Clooney the Clown, who worked in a circus that came through town. His shoes were too big and his hat was too small, but he just wasn't, just wasn't funny at all. He had a trombone to play loud, silly tunes. He had a green dog and a thousand balloons. He was floppy and sloppy and skinny and tall, but he just wasn't, just wasn't funny at all. And every time he did a trick, everyone felt a little sick. And every time he told a joke, folks sighed as if their hearts were broke. And every time he lost a shoe, everyone looked awfully blue. And every time he stood on his head, everyone screamed, go back to bed. And every time he made a leap, everybody fell asleep. And every time he ate his tie, everyone began to cry. And Clooney could not make any money simply because he was not funny. One day he said, I'll tell this town how it feels to be an unfunny clown. And he told them all why he looked so sad. And he told them all why he felt so bad. He told of pain and rain and cold. He told of darkness in his soul. And after he finished his tale of woe, did everyone cry? 
Oh, no, no, no. They laughed until they shook the trees with ha-ha-ha and hee-hee-hees. They laughed with howls and yowls and shrieks. They laughed all day. They laughed all week. They laughed until they had a fit. They laughed until their jacket split. The laughter spread for miles around to every city, every town, over mountains, across the sea, from Saint-Tropez to Mont-Saint-Denis. And soon the whole world rang with laughter, lasting till forever after. After, while Clooney stood in the circus tent with his head drooped low and his shoulders bent, and he said, That is not what I meant. I'm funny, just by accident. And while the world laughed outside, Clooney the clown sat down and cried. Oh. Amazing poem. It is an amazing poem by an amazing, an amazing American poet, Charles Silverstein. Anyway, we'll go clowning one day and we'll explore your, what was that word you told us for an allergy to clowns or a phobia about clowns? Oh, coolrophobia. But that poem is the absolute epitome of merry-go-sorry, I would say. Ah. Um, thank you so much to everybody for getting in touch as you continue to do. And we're really grateful for everything that you send in. Um, if you do have something you'd like to tell us about or a theme that you'd like to suggest or just any comment, really, please email purple at somethingelse.com. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Ella McLeod, Jay Beale. And, well, I have to say, I'm delighted that this person is back. He is back. Yes. Thank you, Kali. Kali.